Welcome to Alec Across the States. I'm your host, Dan Reynolds. Today, we're going to be sitting down with a great organization that works with Alec called the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Joining me to discuss this great organization and some of the work that it does is first from Alec, the Senior Director of the Federalism and International Relations Task Force, Carla Jones. Carla, thank you so much for calling in and setting up this great conversation today. Thank you, Dan. And from the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, we have the Executive Director, Marion Smith. Marion, thank you so much for uh, taking some time today to join all of our listeners. It's great to be with you. So just for a starter, and for our listeners who may not be familiar with your organization, can you tell us a little bit more about the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation? Uh, maybe you know when and how you guys were founded, and what are some of the most important things that you guys are working on? Sure. So the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation was established in 1994 as the result of a unanimous act of Congress. A few years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, we had members of Congress like Jesse Helms and Tom Lantosh who believed that America needed an institution that would educate Americans about the ideology, the history, and the legacy of communism and um, memorialize the victims of communist regimes, and that some 100 million people killed in some 40 nations uh, since the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. In 2007, uh, President George W. Bush dedicated our memorial statue a few blocks away from the U.S. Capitol. And these days, uh, our foundation focuses its programs in four main areas, uh, memory, education, human rights, and citizen engagement. There is, and I'm sure many of your listeners are aware, a um, alarming trend among millennials and Gen Zers, especially, largely because of a failure of education, um, just a, a basic lack of knowledge of 20th century history and a unfortunate but real warming to the ideas of socialism, even communism, and in some cases, fascism, and a lack of appreciation for freedom, democracy, uh, free enterprise, free speech. And so in all of our activities and all of our programs, we try to uh, work with teachers and veterans around the country and individuals from the victims of communism nations. So this would be you know, the tens of millions of Americans who are in this country because they or their parents or their grandparents escaped one of those 40 nations that experienced communist rule and came here to the United States. And I'm also happy to announce that next spring we'll be opening phase one of our museum project in Washington, D.C. Well, that's awesome. And thank you for announcing that. Actually, lately, and you know, maybe we can be talking about some breaking news. Earlier today, the United States was announcing that it's going to be withholding or banning cotton products from a certain area of China. And that has to do with certain atrocities that China has been committing against its Uyghur people and its community. It's been in the news a lot, even more than just what I've mentioned there. And Carla and the ALEC Federalism and International Relations Task Force have addressed it at many of our meetings. So just for those who aren't familiar, for those who aren't in the task force, for those who aren't experts in following this in the news, who are the Uyghur people and what is the Chinese government doing to them? Well, it's, you know, an interesting question where I am right now. I'm, I'm joining her from Berlin. And uh, over the weekend, I was a juror 
on a tribunal that was hearing cases from former political prisoners within the East German regime, you know, more than 31 years ago, who were forced to engage in in voluntary, you know, uh, labor, forced labor or slavery. And, um, you know, we were talking about the past, but as you've highlighted, you know, what was happening in the Gulag and in the communist regimes of Europe during the Cold War is very much happening uh, today. And in Xinjiang, you have uh, the Chinese Communist Party, which has instituted a, a modern form of slavery with technical innovations. And you have in the province of Xinjiang, China, 1.8 to 3 million, mostly Uyghur people. So an ethnic group who are mostly Muslim, Turkic people in uh, the far west of China. And this group is undergoing just absolute extreme uh, forms of oppression, forced sterilization of Uyghur women, forced abortions, um, forced marriages of Uyghur women to Han Chinese men, the collecting of biometric data of the entire population in that province, which is some 11 million people. And that means that uh, all of their you know, information is known and, and facial recognition technology cameras uh, on the streets tracks their movement. They're not allowed to travel freely, of course, in China. They're restricted within uh, Xinjiang and even within their you know, town or, or community. And then you have uh, 1.8 to 3 million Uyghurs uh, who are in re-education camps, forced labor camps. And we know that um, they undergo indoctrination, they undergo extreme forms of torture and abuse, and they are um, engaged in organized forced labor that is uh, participating in the cotton industry in that region. Uh, Xinjiang, I believe, is still the number one uh, exporter uh, region of cotton. And that cotton ends up in, in the products of places like uh, Tommy Hilfiger, Ralph Lauren, uh, Victoria's Secret, and Zara, and others. And so, you know, our group and others have shined a light on what is happening. And it is, of course, very good news that there are members of Congress and the Senate who are passing legislation to ban cotton from that region which would force companies to uh, you know, restructure their supply chains to not benefit from slave labor organized by the Chinese Communist Party. Given what a closed society China is, how do we find out about what is happening in Xinjiang province? How do the Uyghurs get the information out? Well, it's uh, come from a couple of different sources. First, we have uh, one of our uh, senior research fellows, Adrian Zenz uh, at VOC, um, began looking into official Chinese documents that were publicly available. And um, he noticed that there was a intense concentration of effort on setting up uh, new prison-like camps in Xinjiang a few years ago, and that they were recruiting for prison guards and various other you know, personnel that would seem to indicate a pretty disturbing uh, system. And that combined with reports that were coming out of the region by Uyghurs and their family, by Uyghurs who were in the region and their family members who had gotten out. And, you know, you also have others from Kazakhstan or Turkmenistan 
who have been caught up in the camp system. And of course, they're in a different country. Their family members are in a different country. And so there's been a lot of evidence, witness testimony about what is happening there. And it all begins to add up. And for many years, until very recently, China denied that there were re-education camps. Now, of course, they admit that and they they call them re-education camps. And yet they are still denying that there is forced labor uh, happening and they're denying that there is uh, forms of genocide happening like forced sterilization. But again, the evidence is growing and, um, you know, it's very clear that what is happening there is uh, probably the greatest uh, atrocity, most systematic form of concentration camps that we've seen since the Nazi regime of World War II. It seems like this technology has really facilitated China's ability to oppress the Uyghurs. Has technology fundamentally changed how authoritarian regimes are able to monitor, control, and frankly, terrorize their citizens? And is China exporting any of its surveillance technology to other nations? It is, uh, I think, one of the most important questions of our century, uh, Carla. The Chinese Communist Party, especially under Xi Jinping, has been able to build a more total totalitarian system than George Orwell could have ever imagined. You know, the joke was that there was a babushka on every corner in the Soviet Union, you know, informing on her neighbors and, you know, passing information along to the state uh, security authorities. But in China, they can rely on a sophisticated, you know, high tech totalitarian surveillance system that can track your online activity now can, as, as I described with facial recognition technology, can track your movement on streets and even in a rural town in Xinjiang and can use um, AI, artificial intelligence, to flag anomalies in behavior for the humans cataloged in the system. And so uh, they're able to surveil and, and, and control populations uh, at a much lower you know, administrative burden than was required in the, in the Soviet Union days. And absolutely, they have sought to export this technology to countries in Africa and Latin America. They have basically absorbed the entire internet system of Nepal into the Chinese internet. And they are helping totalitarian and authoritarian regimes set up the infrastructure to control their populations and maintain authoritarian systems. And of course, uh, we have examples of some of the you know, technology, facial recognition technology, and other forms of technology being transferred even to companies or uh, local law enforcement officials in the United States. It's, of course, very concerning, needs to be looked into. And you have uh, companies like Huawei and uh, ZTE and other tech companies, manufacturing companies that manufacture tech you know, hardware that are being integrated into the infrastructure of even our allies in Europe and elsewhere. And so the Trump administration has made this a top priority. And you do have countries like the Czech Republic and Poland and, and the UK, you know, either banning uh, these companies from building 5G infrastructure, for example, or taking a national security look at it. And I think we can't kid ourselves that this is a fundamental threat to our uh, freedom and, and our way of life. So the movie Mulan just recently released 
on Disney+. Plus. There's been a lot of talk about it, some good, some bad, a lot of controversy about where it was filmed on the Xinjiang province. I'm not going to be able to pronounce that correctly. That's the province that we've been discussing for most of this podcast. So there have been, you know, a lot of different talks about it. Some people really concerned about the human rights violations against the Uyghurs. What do you think? Do you think this film is typical of the U.S. film's industry's relationship with China? Does it indicate anything about today? What should we be concerned? What should we be thinking about when it comes to the Uyghurs and the recent release of Mulan? Well, I I do think that you have many examples of well-known American companies who are virtue signaling and criticizing Americans. Uh, This would be true of the NBA. This would be true of Disney and other companies. While at the same time, these companies have made a strategic decision to do business with the Chinese Communist Party. And when the Chinese Communist Party puts the pressure on, they end up spreading propaganda for the CCP. And in the case of Disney, they not only filmed significant parts of this in Xinjiang, which of course is uh, totally monitored by the party and basically amounts to Disney executives authorizing the collaboration between Disney movie production and a totalitarian regime that's conducting genocide in that very region. But also the lead actress in that film, you know, made her support of the Hong Kong police and Beijing very clear in their crackdown against the pro-democracy protesters, the student protesters of Hong Kong. So on multiple different levels, Disney's movie Mulan is a sad snapshot of where we are in 2020, that a a storied, quote-unquote, family brand like Disney uh, would be pulling films made in the 1950s and 60s from uh, their online streaming service because it offends people in the United States. Uh, some people in the United States, while also uh, actively participating with a totalitarian genocidal regime. And we have a new human rights fellow at our foundation, Johar Ilhan, whose father, Ilhan Toti, uh, was separated from her at an airport. They're both Turkic Uyghur. And um, her father, she's never seen him uh, again. And she's written a wonderful piece at the Daily Beast recently explaining how if, if you uh, want to understand who the young heroines are in China today, it's people like her and it's people like the young women and uh, young men of Hong Kong who are standing up against the most powerful totalitarian regime in history, trying to preserve their freedom. And the fact that America's uh, you know Fortune 500 companies are siding with their oppressors uh, is a major problem. That really is disturbing. Before we move on to Hong Kong, are there other minorities in China that are suffering under or vulnerable to Chinese repression? Or is it just the Uyghurs? There are, of course, um, still genocidal policies occurring in Tibet. In fact, uh, it appears that the CCP learned quite a few things in Tibet and they have made their their policies in Xinjiang even more effective as the result of that. And you have uh, senior individuals within the party who are responsible for 
the administration of Tibet, who then were responsible for the administration of Xinjiang. And the Trump administration has placed a few of those individuals on sanctions list, which was long overdue. And um, it turns out, of course, that the Trump administration in the United States recently has been the first government in the world uh, to actively punish the People's Republic of China for their atrocities, uh, the concentration camps, the genocidal policies in Xinjiang. And we should uh, demand that our allies uh, stop participating in you know, global supply chain uh, transfers that are relying on slave labor. And of course, we should demand that U.S. companies uh, stop uh, that as well. Um, but you have Tibetans, you have Uyghurs, you have uh, Mongolians, you have, they're not ethnic groups, but various religious uh, groups, Christians in house churches, un unsanctioned religious groups. You have Falun Gong and many other groups uh, that are you know, targeted by the Chinese Communist Party because they are a threat to uh, their stranglehold on power. And um, it seems true that what the CCP has done in Xinjiang, meaning the, uh, the integrated use of high-tech surveillance and population control systems, is really a test case for what they could roll out throughout China. And, um, you know, perhaps you're aware of the, you know, peer monitoring online system, uh, which basically uses social media in China to encourage online users to inform or report on their friends and others online and gives everyone a social credit score that is tied to their credit score, is tied to their political activity, to their family's uh, activity. And uh, again, this is just a, a level of Orwellian totalitarianism that was unthinkable uh, until just a few years ago. And these ethnic groups are absolutely top targets for the party. So I do want us to transition toward Hong Kong now. We've seen it be covered in the news extensively, democratic institutions, we've seen them unravel rapidly. Can you tell our listeners what happened and maybe tell them uh, if you see any hope for restoring Hong Kong's independence? Well, about uh, six or seven years ago, uh, the Chinese Communist Party mandated a change to the high school curriculum, uh, his, history curriculum in, in Hong Kong. And there were a number of high school students who opposed a pro-communist interpretation of history uh, being taught in Hong Kong schools. And they formed an organization and a protest movement. And that ultimately created a group of dissident leaders, young dissident leaders in Hong Kong, that the world really learned about in 2014 with the Umbrella Revolution. And then, of course, we have all seen the protests that, that occurred last year and earlier this year, this year, in which you had 2 million people on the streets out of a population of some 7 million protesting the takeover uh, of Hong Kong by the Chinese Communist Party. And, um, you know, clearly... Uh, since the handover of Hong Kong by the United Kingdom to uh, the People's Republic of China, the Communist Party has been whittling away the freedoms and the autonomy of Hong Kong, what was once you know, a beacon of free enterprise and prosperity and freedom in Asia. The Chinese Communist Party viewed that as a threat because you had Chinese people who had never been ruled 
by communism who were very successful and and were also criticizing you know the party in, in China and with the passage of the new national security law which of course allows Hong Kong citizens to be tried and taken into uh, mainland China and interrogated by state security. It allows Chinese state security to operate in Hong Kong. Uh, it really has eliminated the autonomy of Hong Kong. And so, sadly, I think we have to um, encourage Hong Kongers to um, you know, to leave and to try to be settled in countries that are willing to take them. The United Kingdom, Australia. Canada have uh, passed uh, laws uh, uh, giving them, you know, special status, asylum, political asylum. The United States should absolutely welcome these Chinese people from Hong Kong into our country the way we did Vietnamese and Russian immigrants and dissidents from Central and Eastern Europe and Cuban refugees. We should absolutely welcome them because they are I think uh, very important for even our future relationship with the Chinese Communist Party and dealing with the national security matters. But absolutely, the game has changed with the passage of the national security law. And so in a certain sense, we have, and I hate to say it, and would not have said it until this, this occurred a few months ago, but we have in a practical sense lost Hong Kong. Is Xi Jinping using Hong Kong to test America's resolve in the region. The reason I ask this is a lot of our members are great supporters of Taiwan and worry that events unfolding in Hong Kong might soon threaten Taiwan. What would you say to our members about that? Well, I think your members are expressing the uh, commonsensical insight of the American people, which sees this uh, for what it is. Our elites in the United States of both parties have for too long played by China's rules. And we believed the Chinese Communist Party when we normalized relations with them in the 70s. We believed them when we gave them uh, most favored nation status in the WTO and engaged them in all of the international organizations that we invited them to participate in. We should have remembered they were communists. And they have lied, they have um, misused the international organizations that they have been party to, they have artificially devalued their currency, they have engaged in slave labor, um, they have engaged in unfair um, trading practices, on and on. And we should have kept all of this in mind uh, when we pretended like they would have uh, respected uh, the freedom and the autonomy of Hong Kong. Of course they didn't. There was nothing in their history. There's nothing in the history of the Chinese Communist Party that would give us any indication that they were not uh, going to do exactly what they have done. And so I think now, yes, we have to take very seriously the threats that are being made by China against Taiwan. When senior party members and when senior military officials in the People's Republic of China threaten military invasion of Taiwan, we had better take it seriously. And so I think the United States must absolutely strengthen our diplomatic relations and military cooperation with Taiwan. They are a free, independent, prosperous, democratic society of Chinese people. And we would be not only sacrificing our values, but undercutting our national security interests not to stand with Taiwan. 
Some foreign policy thinkers argue that Xi Jinping's grip on power is not as stable as it appears, that he's overextended China financially with the Belt and Road Initiative, for example, that he mismanaged COVID-19 and is going to pay a political price for that, and that China's extraordinary levels of debt are finally catching up to it. They point to China's middle class that they say won't be patient with the inevitable economic downturns. And they believe that this middle class could undermine Xi's leadership. First of all, do you believe that Xi has a firm grip on power both nationally and within the Chinese Communist Party? And if not, is a vulnerable Xi Jinping even more dangerous than one firmly in control? Well, again, this is a, one of the most important questions um, to be considered on the issue of China. Everything that you say is true in regards to the problems facing China today. And yet, we have to acknowledge that Xi Jinping is the most powerful leader of China since Mao. And in a certain sense, everything that's uh, true of China was in a way true of the Soviet Union, uh, and even in a worse way. Um, by the 70s. And yet, you know, the Soviet Union's leadership from that time on uh, sort of lost confidence in their system and uh, were more and more interested in engaging uh, with the West and, and reforming their own system. The Soviet Union, after that point, never really got a second Stalin. But unfortunately, uh, the People's Republic of China has gotten their second Mao, and that is Xi Jinping. And um, Economically, of course, uh, China is much more powerful, much more prosperous and wealthy and technologically advanced than the Soviet Union was in the 70s and the 80s. And so um, I do think that uh, Xi Jinping is in control of the party. You know, he is now going to be the longest serving uh, leader of the country since Mao, officially. And he has uh, destroyed the opposition that he had personally within the party. He has um, taken over control of the military, uh, People's Liberation Army, which um, for many decades uh, had some bit of distance from, from the secretary general and the quote-unquote president of the country. And so it's very clear that he has centralized uh, power into his own hands, consolidated power into his own hands. And he, of course, is willing to be uh, brutal and um, you know, the economic middle class in the country uh, is true. And there's, of course, that's one of the great uh, economic, um, you know, stories of the 20th century is the growing middle class uh, of China. But as we, of course, know, that has not translated into any sort of political freedom or political influence within China. And, you know, you have very wealthy billionaires who are very important uh, for <laughs> The economic workings of the country, who are disappeared, you know, from their hotel rooms and eliminated from the society, and Xi Jinping is the one controlling those levers of power. And so, yes, I do think it is a very dangerous situation. So we are wrapping up our podcast now. We're coming to the final moments, our final segments here. I do want to ask for all the state policy wonks and state legislators out there. Not only what should the United States do to counter Chinese aggression and, you know, the various human rights violations that we've been discussing on this podcast, uh, but specifically, what can the states do? 
A lot of times people don't think about that, but I think it's an important conversation to have. Absolutely. So since 2017, a number of states have been passing official recognition, either through resolution or an actual act, making it an annual holiday, November 7th as the day when we commemorate the victims of communist regimes around the world. And now many states where this has passed are using that day to hold education events and you know, press conferences and memorial events on statehouse grounds and, and elsewhere. And I, I think that aspect of memory is very important. And in every state, there are, of course, as I mentioned, many people who they or their parents or their grandparents escaped a communist country. And their stories matter. Those tens of millions of people have made our country a better place. And of course, on the issue of China, state legislatures can uh, demand that public universities and high schools uh, not provide spaces for Confucius Institutes or other quote-unquote educational organizations that are managed and, and organized by the Chinese uh, embassy and Chinese consulates around the country. And um, I, I think this is, uh, you know, something that exists in almost every state in the country. And um, uh, state legislatures can, can demand that universities not allow them to operate uh, on their campuses and that high schools not allow these uh, pro-communist groups to operate on their grounds. And I think that would be a very important way of, you know, showing solidarity uh, with the oppressed in China. But of course, it's also a way of defending our free speech and um, our way of life here in, in the United States as well. I would just like to add to that, that the ALEC Federalism and International Relations Task Force adopted model policy a couple of years ago to establish a Victims of Communism Day. And a lot of the initiatives that have seated in the states, they've been led by our members. And we commemorate Victims of Communism Day each November 7th. And this is going to be our third year doing that. And we adopted model policy to defund Confucius Institutes at public universities. And as always, Alec is ahead of the curve, and it's so important. And the United States has, has got to be a place where we remain, you know, a beacon of freedom. And it is no accident that in Hong Kong, the protesters were waving American flags for the last two years. And it is, of course, extremely disturbing that on American streets in the last year and a half, they're waving hammer and sickle flags and Nazi swastikas. And that's, of course, uh, in no small part due to a, a failure of education. And I know Alec works on this issue intensely. And our foundation does have educational resources. We have teacher training seminars that we uh, will organize with local partners uh, in uh, school districts around the country. And uh, you know anything that our education folks can do with your members on, on that, we're at your disposal. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Alec Across the States. I've been your host, Dan Reynolds. 
joined by the executive director of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, Marion Smith. Marion, thank you so much for everything that you gave to our listeners today. Thank you both. And the senior director of the International Relations and Federalism Task Force, Carla Jones. Thank you so much for setting this entire conversation up. Thank you, Marion, and thank you, Dan. And if you're interested in having your ideas featured on ALEC Across the States, do not hesitate to email us at acrossthestates at alec.org. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.